All right, we're here with second. No, this is third period. Something. Yeah, I think I think it's third period. Yes, third. Period. Okay, we have a student ready to ask a question. State your name for the record. All right, my name is Braxton Morrison, and uh, this is mainly a question for Mr. Nixon because he's a Gov teacher. But um, as an AP Gov teacher, do you feel like you're uh, required or like you should not be biased at all? with your own governmental opinions or your own political party opinions? Or do you feel like you are biased in the classroom? Well, what I do with APGov is I'm very upfront with them about where I'm at. Whenever we do have an assignment, um, I tell them where I, I stand on it. And I know that not every teacher takes, takes that tack, um, but I need them to defend their opinions and I need them to challenge mine. And they can't do that if they don't know where I'm at because a, one of the biggest components of APCOV is persuasive argument, right? And so I think it's fair that if I'm going to ask them to, to tell me what they believe and what they feel, that I do the same. I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. Right. Well, we can answer that question too. It's not just a, a Gov type question. I, t I actually take the opposite approach. Um, I've actually recently, even this year, had students go, well, are you going to tell us what you think? Yeah, well, it, no. <laughs> Not really, and the reason is for me, and it's different because I don't teach what he teaches. Maybe it'd be, maybe I would do it differently if I taught Gov. But the idea that I mean, I teach culture and I teach religion and I teach a lot of the processes that develop those things in. So I typically take a very neutral stance on that as far as right, because my job is not to teach you or to even even encourage you to think the way I think, or to to dissuade you from someone else's beliefs. Like my job is to present information for you, and then you grapple with that yourself and come up with your own identity and your own belief system right how do you feel about it that's up to you i really don't care one way or the other but at least you've thought about a well-rounded thing so i'm gonna hit everything uh, um one year i had it's only been once i think that when you think about teaching world religions that i had someone who goes well that's kind of weird it's not, i had a grandma one time who's like well you're teaching my kid about buddhism and you're teaching them to be buddhist i'm like i'm not teaching them to be anything other than someone who's thoughtful right and so if i were to take a stance on one religion or the other, you couldn't be as thoughtful as I need you to be about that. So can you incorporate those things into your life? That's up to you. Yeah. I mean, what do you yeah, do? Yeah, I don't, well, I, I don't think any of my students actually know my views on conservatism or liberalism. They know my views on the current president because, but I attack him ad hominem. I attack his person, not his policies, generally speaking. So I think, you know, because he's just so much fun to make fun of, I just can't help it. It's just... <laughs> You know, I couldn't really make fun of Obama. Even W, I didn't make fun of. But it's just Trump's not either conservative or liberal. He's his own unique thing. Mm. And I, once again, it's not his policies necessarily. But that's not really politics because he doesn't know what he is. So, but I doubt they could. T they could. I pretty much keep my. Is he a conservative on this issue or liberal? They probably don't know that. And that's okay. You know. No, I will say I did it differently when I taught civics. Um, because I did feel with the age group that it was more appropriate that I'm just giving information to let them form their own belief. But by 12th grade, when we're generally in AP Gov, I need you beyond that. So the it's problem, a little bit different. A lot of the times, the problem, though, they people, especially less uh, sophisticated in their knowledge people, whatever you'll call them, out, even outside of the school, they think Trump represents the Republican Party or that the conservative. Yeah, he does not. And he's, he's, he's not, you know, so like somebody might hear me criticize him and go, well, he must hate Republicans or he must be a lit one of those snowflake liberals. No, I'm just making fun of Trump, the person. <laughs> <laughs> and that's as far as it goes. Okay.
Hello, my name's Chris Horner, and I was, I was wondering what you think about uh, China's ability to censor other countries to such a degree to where people working under the companies that they control in other countries can't even express their opinion about the stuff that's going on. That's an interesting reality, isn't it? The, do you want to jump in or do you want me to go? Oh, you can go. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, part of what you're referencing is the, um, well, the, there's a situation going on in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a semi-autonomous part of China, and it has been, it was actually owned by Britain for, you know, a couple of centuries. Um, they, the agreement is that they will allow, China will allow them to remain autonomous as long as they fit with inside a certain uh, process and they pay taxes and whatever. Uh, but they've been really very uh, kind of a, 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 a center for democracy in an otherwise non-democratic area. Uh, and so recently there have been protests because the Chinese government's trying to crack down on that and try to pull Hong Kong into the fold and, and pressure them to be uh, less democratic and more in line with the, uh, uh, you know, the autoc autocracy that China is. And those guys are fighting back. So uh, here in our country, because we have such a strong relation, trade relations with China, and we've been critical of them in the past, but we have to be careful because they have, uh, you know, they're a powerful country and they are world's second biggest economy and we have to we have to kind of play by different rules when we deal with them. But they're easily offended, and they're very uh, concerned about their image and what that means. Uh, and so anytime we have someone who might take a pro-democracy stance, because we are very pro-democratic in this country, uh, and we try to push that around the different parts of the world, but then they get mad at us. And I th Are you referencing specifically the NBA um, issue? Okay. Uh, it wasn't NBA commissioner, but it was somebody related to the – well, the league. That, um, and there was a player, he played a game, uh, he mentioned during it that he supported Hong Kong, he was removed, banned, and they took away his earnings yeah. from winning the game. They had, yeah, so there was, a, there was an official, too, with inside the, the NBA itself, not just uh, the players. Uh, but they, we've been doing exhibition games in China, and there were some that were scheduled. And they were going to broadcast it all across their nation, and there was this you know, multi-million dollar deal with the NBA to, to have that happen. And so they were pretty proud of that uh, economic relationship. But when you criticized... China by proxy uh, supporting Hong Kong, then they're like, well, we're just not going to broadcast those games. And you, you know, they, they were that highly offended, which they have the right to be. And we've got to figure out how we want to stand on that. Is the money more important than our principles? And some people would say, we well, should bow down and it doesn't really matter. Uh, my opinion is it matters. And so if we're going to sit back and let go, well, you just do whatever you want to because it might cost us or some corporation in this country money, but we're not going to defend democratic processes around the world, then what are we really doing as a country, right? So, I mean, I think that th that's a mixed bag. Every corporation has to make its own decisions. But at the, at the same time, as a country, what do we stand for and what are we willing to, to challenge other people on? Uh, you know, I mean, we'll see where it goes. It's still kind of in flux right now, I think. Yeah, if go I ahead. Ask one more yeah, question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what historical event do you think that people don't see as significant as they should that had like a big impact on history it could be like a battle a long time ago or a form of government or laws that people made mm -hmm. that's a good question yeah that might be take some thought the obvious one in american history forever was bacon's rebellion no one really knew what that thing was until a historian dug up and kind of traced that to be the starting point for increase african slavery and racial slavery in america so that's something that for a long time was hidden until about the 70s, 80s, and now it's taught in every school. But as far as something that's super significant that people 
For me, it would be um, the Haitian Revolution uh, in the early 1800s. Um, that was a slave rebellion that was eventually successful. Uh, about half a million people fought for their freedom, not only against the people who were on the island controlling them, the plantation owners and whatnot, but against three major European powers. They fought against France, they fought against Britain, they fought against Spain, and they maintained their own integrity and were able to, to rise up and, and to eliminate these overlords, basically. Uh, and then we, sitting right next door, refused to help, refused to acknowledge their success. And the reason is that it was actually blocked from, uh, from even newspaper reporting in this country is that we had, at the same time, about four million slaves in our country, and we did not want to encourage them to rise up as well. So I, it, it's been one of those stories that, since I've learned about it, I mean, I had to investigate that on my own. And I teach that uh, pretty thoroughly in my AP World class. But, uh, yeah, th I think that one stands out immensely because it's so unique. They're the second American group to become independent after us, and yet hardly anybody knows that story. I, I would say that their revolution is more significant than ours in, a, in certain ways because of what they were willing to sacrifice in order to gain freedom. And we fought against basically one country. They fought against three with, that, with, little, with limited resources at that, by the way. Well, I'm coming at this from like a government or a legal sort of perspective, so mine's quite a bit different. Um, but what I've been thinking about is the, well, you teach the switch in time that saved nine. And okay, so the vote on the Supreme Court that went from um, knocking down all New Deal era legislation um, to upholding it, and you see the Supreme Court actually giving in to political pressure for the first time on a big scale, and how much we've changed since with the political pressure that's placed on the court. Yeah. Um, but that's very government-specific, so that's probably not... I'll tell you one real quick. Uh, the re-election of Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War. It's the first time we ever had an election of a president in war, and he obviously the Southern Democrats, they all left, so they were just Republicans, and many urged him, don't run. You don't have to run. Just be president. We're at time of war. Now, if he had made the decision to just, yes, we're at war, so I don't have to run for president when we're at war, you could see how... Anytime we're at war in the future, the president doesn't have to run. That would be a crazy thing to deal with. But he set a precedent that no matter what, we're going to have that election. And you can. And he nearly it wasn't clear he was going to win, to be honest. We'll get there for y you guys. But that's a significant thing that nobody ever talks about. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right, next question. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, it's fine. Um, we talk a lot in Mr. Pumphrey about uh, – the presidents that George Washington, George Washington said on accident, or just not on purpose, just by being as powerful and influential as he is. Um, what presidents do you think that anyone set that people don't know was set by a specific person just doing their thing? Hmm. No, that one I just mentioned about Lincoln's a good one like that. He just he decided to run for re-election during war, and we've done it ever since. But um, I'm sure there's others. Clarify the question. I'm not a precedent that a president set. set Without and that not many people don't know, like Truman taking over c complete control of atomic authority, yeah, because he was worried about the generals dropping more bombs, and he was horrified when he heard the results yeah. of what the bombs did. So now there's no check on the presidential power if he wants to bomb Yemen because he just didn't like the name. He could do it, and nobody can stop him, and that's worrisome. I don't think a lot of people realize that Truman didn't have total control over that decision to bomb Japan. Yeah, they, that were, was they were ready to go. They yeah. basically towed him. We're bombing. But we'll get there too, guys. We're going to have a debate over that. Another precedent. 
Well, I have a precedent, but it's not by a president. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so there's a tradition at the Supreme Court that the Chief Justice, when they're deciding a case, votes last. Um, and the Chief Justice, that gives him considerable power because he can see if it's a four to four, he can decide whether he's going to be the swing vote, and then he can craft the majority decision, either making it very broad or very narrow. And that's something that they've held on to as long as I can remember the Supreme Court function going back in modern modern Supreme Court times. Um, so that's one that I think a lot of people don't know about. Did you say that it was Shays' Rebellion where um, Washington made the decision to, like, we're going to mobilize troops and we're going to put this down, or was that a different one? The Whiskey Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion, okay. Yeah, where he decided to go. The governor wasn't doing anything in Pennsylvania, so he just pat bypassed him and led an army inside of a state. Right. But you the... That's that's important. Th- this stuff kind of what what happens is somebody does something and then it be- pretty quickly becomes the norm, you know. And then and then it becomes a thing we do. Like we don't indict a president, you know. That it, it just somebody decided that would be a good idea. It just became the norm, and now it's kind of like what we do. Could it's, that whiskey rebellion have turned into a civil war if he hadn't done that? I don't know what would have happened. He was hoping I mean, initially the, that Pennsylvania would have taken care of it. Might they have seceded if he didn't mo- move in and? Because, I mean, that was a big deal. Right? That was a big deal, yeah. <laughs> of course, then they saw him and 13,000 troops, and they're like, well, okay, we'll pay our taxes. Um, I don't know. All those deci- – you know, Washington was very aware that, of being the first president, and he was very aware that everything he did would affect future presidents. And it's all an experiment. When they call it the Republican experiment for a reason, we were just shooting in the dark. We still are in some ways. You know, and we kind of became the example for what a republic should be, but that was a learning curve that we, you know, it, civil war, whatever you want to go th- – go to this that we're we're a pretty interesting uh, anomaly in world history like we when we created this republic most other things that we could talk about especially in europe that where we were you know getting guidance basically uh they're all monarchies and they all expected us to fail pretty quickly the most liberal was england <laughs> right with a and that cons- wasn't liberal enough for us with a constitutional monarchy <laughs> and uh with, with a parliament and all of that that challenges basically the the power and the authority of the of the monarch but yeah, everybody else was waiting for this. I mean, they're like, this is ridiculous. It'll never work. Self-government? Like, how are you going to survive? How are you going to defend yourself? And for the first few years under the Articles of Confederation, like, we almost didn't. Like, they were hoping, in a sense, that we would come collapsing because they were readying armies to come back in and take us over. Like, that's, that's not really well known either. The fact that we made it work is kind of a fluke, actually, in a weird way. Yeah, the fact that the American Revolution or the war even was won is a flu. It's all <laughs> just yeah. Yeah. hey, it worked out. God wanted us to be a thing. All right, next question. I, I'm not really trying to speak for God, honestly. <laughs> Hello, Hi. hey, my name's Connor Johnson, uh, and I'm wondering what's the most influential thing you've seen one of your students do in school or out? Uh, either. Yeah, I mean. Most influential thing. Years ago, I was at a, I don't even know if they still do these close up Arkansas conferences where they have students to do panel discussions about pressing issues. And one of the issues they asked about was um, euthanasia or right to die legislation. And pretty much everyone in the room was against it. And she got up and delivered a personal story about her grandmother um, passing and the agony that she was in, and she had wanted to end her own life. And she stood up and delivered a very tearful, moving defense of right-to-die legislation. And it was well beyond her her age or her years. So that's probably mine. Mm, yeah. I had a student that was an actor and starred in some big movies. 
I mean, not huge movies, but some decent movies. I mean, that's kind of rare. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, like it it like he, he was a co-star. I mean, he was young too, but he was a co-star of like people like big actors. So that's um, something. We've had it's it's interesting to be here because we've had lots of students go on and to be successful. A student that I had um, this is probably eh, close to ten years ago now, I suppose. Uh, is now uh, working in Washington D.C. and has uh, worked his way up through political systems. Not not as a, a paid politician, but working through the offices of paid politicians and uh, I mean elected officials. And so uh, that's pretty cool. He touches base with me every now and then. Say, here's the thing we're, we're doing now. These we're, they're working on these, you know, crafting these types of legislation. So he's he's out. He's part of the Beltway, which I think is pretty fascinating. I've ha- I've had a lot of students also become teachers. And the cool yeah. thing about being a teacher, one of the cool things, I love it, but you can influence so many people. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of students I've taught or how many people I've coached or whatever come in contact with or other teachers that have said, but you know, if you want to get into the teaching field, one cool thing is, you know, you'll remember me. You'll remember me. I remember all my teachers. I mean, you know, most of them. All right. Yeah. My name is Jacob Happy. Uh, last year in A-Push, we learned about the military-industrial complex in America, how Eisenhower warned against it, but after World War II, we still developed one anyway. And I was wondering, given the current state of the United States, how we've been in a constant state of war pretty much for the past, well, it's almost two decades now. Um, Longer than you've been alive. Yeah, yeah that's scary to think. Because of that, do you believe it's going to be possible for us to get out of this military-industrial complex, or are we just going to be stuck in it for however long? And if so, how would we get out of it? Well, one thing you have to do on the governmental side is break something they call the Iron Triangle, um, which is where lobbyists that represent those military-industrial complex companies um, basically control the money rolling into politics and therefore the re-election of the people. Um, in Congress who therefore give them special favors and it creates this iron that's why they call it the iron triangle it's, it's this self-perpetuating system that nobody seems to be able to break out of um, because it's going to take up it's going to take giving up that money um, so that's the first thing I think for me anyway I have been more and more convinced in the last few years that I don't care what you want to change about our country if we do not change the campaign financial situation which he just mentioned nothing else really matters because nothing else will really change it's always going to be the corporate America that we know and love Uh, one of the complications in that Jacob is that the military not just through its own work and money uh, expenditures the contractors that then s- then then work alongside with them, people who aren't in the military but contract through the military, like those, that's a gigantic employer of workers in this country and outside. And so, uh, you know, if you if you reduce that, h- how do you effectively reduce it? Let's say that we do try to break this, but then w- you're going to be eliminating jobs, which will then have an impact on the on the uh, financial well-being of families, and then that could have an overarching uh, impact on our economy. So is there a way to sort of break those guys free from military contracts into other kinds of uh, work? And and if you're, and then, but but how do you, how do you help those to transition? Or do you even, or you just cut them loose and say, well, go get retraining like they do with a lot of other industries, right? Um, I don't know. I think it would take, it would take some, uh, some creative economic gymnastics, perhaps, 
to uh, help alleviate any of the economic systems that suffered because we no longer supported all of that uh, military complex. I don't believe in perpetual war either. Like that's just increasing our tax burden overall. Um, and so it's like this, we're pouring money down a hole in a certain sense because are we actually gaining, are, are we in wars around the world? This is an interesting sort of tangential thing. Are we in wars around the world because we're trying to promote democracy and save people? Or are we just in perpetual war so that we can keep spending money to provide economic stability in certain ways for our own country? Like that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pessimistic viewpoint, but I think it's fairly accurate. Yeah, and when we go into war or go into conflict in an area, it's not just war machines. It's hotels. It's I mean, there's so many businesses that make so much money off of war. Well, for example, so when Germany reunited in 89 and 90 and 92, uh, we had a large, and we still have military bases there, but we had like 25,000 soldiers there. And so they were working and helping to protect the Western side. But at the same time, they were spending their paychecks there. They were eating in restaurants. They were, uh, they were buying local products, and they were part of the economic system. And when we brought most of those boys home, men and women home, then that ha- actually caused Germany to suffer for an, a, close to a decade, actually, because that financial flow stopped. And you have to figure out other ways to, to ramp that back up. So. I mean, it will, it, it will have an impact if you just cut it off like that. So I don't know how you transition. By the way, side note, I just thought of something. I did have a student take 10 history textbooks and balance them on his head and for a whole period sit against the wall and didn't move. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> so anyhow, just, just trying thought to, of that. Trying to stop growing? Like what was the? I don't know. Somebody challenged him to do it and they asked if I cared and I didn't care. Um, <laughs> I didn't think he could do it. And he, he I will was, s- by the end of the class, he was hurting. I thought of another one too. Since And this is kind of uh, <laughs> this is a little selfish on my part, I suppose. We had a student here who's, who has a parent who teaches here, as a matter of fact, and that student came through all of our AP classes and then went on to whatever college level thing. And the first history class that that kid took, the professor said, here's a list of things on the board from world history, and if any one of you could stand up and speak and uh, uh, well and articulate convincingly about all of those topics, you won't have to come back to class for the rest of the year. And this guy stood up and said, he knocked them all out and the guy was like oh i was just kidding he's like no bro you told me (laughs) like uh, that was impressive because he like if you come through our ap programs like you are you're gonna be somebody when you when you leave this place by the way similar story i was in gymnastics because i was going to be a coach and we had to take all these methods classes and uh the gymnastics teacher said if you can do an iron cross on the rings and hold it for three good seconds you can you can leave and you don't have to i'll give you an a you don't have to come back and there was a five foot ten inch rocked up receiver that just muscled it up and just (laughs) and held it it was perfect and i was like i tried to i was just like i couldn't get to you know and uh he just went see y'all later (laughs) i don't know how they worked that out later but i guess so, yeah, be careful if you become a teacher. Don't make these promises. Good. All right. Next question. My name's Logan White. Like, as I came up here, you started answering it. And um, I wanted to ask if uh, you guys thought it was important to have a military presence in the Middle East right now. Yes. 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 You all do? Yes. And why? Well, you want the list? <laughs> yeah, I have a list. Give me a list. Okay. Go ahead. I mean, I can, I can jump Go if you want. It. All right. First and foremost, um, when well, I don't want to. How far back do I want to go with this? If we go back to World War One, no, I won't do that to you. But uh, we've been we've been urging nations in that area to become more democratic since World War One and Two. 
um, we created Israel as a democratic source of power in that area as well. Um, we've encouraged others to try to be more like us, and sometimes that works, and sometimes that hasn't. I mean, there's a there's an ebb and flow to what they're willing to do, especially in Islamic countries that are uh, curiously trying to figure out how to be westernized but without damaging their own traditional values. Um, and we've seen that Saudi Arabia has made some progress. Jordan has is, is made progress. Egypt has made progress in the past. Um, Iran has made progress in the past. But there's been this trend since World War II um, for them to try to reestablish themselves. The, the Iranian Revolution in 79 caused quite a bit of turmoil uh, because they locked themselves down and went undemocratic, um, much to the chagrin of most of their people. So if you back out of that area, which we have uh, tried to do, let them work on their own devices, like they tend to go back after each other. And so since 2011, um, there's been something called the Arab Spring and where we supported prior to that dictatorial powers in those countries that kind of kept them in check and kept the violence at a minimum um, and then we gave them money and things and they helped some of us actually helped us with the protection of israel and all of those things and the suez canal which is right there that keeps the you know traffic flowing through that uh through those waterways which is very important to uh, global economics uh but arab spring overthrew dictators across the board we went into um, iraq uh, and overthrew Saddam Hussein, that destabilized that area as well. So through a series of miscalculations and other people's miscalculations, the whole area has become uh, destabilized. And our presence there, even though it's been prolonged now, I think is the only thing holding a semblance of democratic process and safety and security for more, pe more people. And the moment that we leave, it's going to go, it's already kind of hellish in places. It's going to get even worse because there's, it's going to be a free-for-all. We can talk about the civil war in Syria. We can talk about the civil war in Yemen. We can talk about what's going on in Oman. We can talk about what's going on in North Africa with different ISIS-type groups like Boko Haram. Like you, it's just this wide range of pending catastrophes and unfolding catastrophes that we are sort of putting a pin in and holding them at least in check to a certain degree. And if we back out, then everything is going to go down. And you have nuclear power in some of those areas too, which or potential nuclear power. And it, forget what isolation has taught us putting our hands in the sand and everything will be okay and everybody will love us. We know that doesn't work, but forget that for now. Also, we lose fact that most of the people in these countries are just normal people. They just want to go to work, provide for their family. You know, that's it. That's nor their life. And they, if you, if you really look at, at the people on the ground, our military and some of the related people that are there, those people want us there. They're, we protect them. We hold all, everything kind of together. And guess what? We're the only country that can do it. So if we go, we leave, we just, millions of people, we're just leaving to who knows what, you know, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but. To tie in with that, though, we have countries that dislike us from a governmental standpoint or a democratic standpoint. Russia is an example. China is an example. And if we don't have influence there, they will. Yeah. Like, that's just, I mean, somebody's going to gobble this up because as they're infighting in the region, that makes them susceptible and weak, and other people will come through and dominate them. And then all of a sudden you have a very hard push against uh, democratic processes, and then we have we find ourselves more isolated by by uh, by comparison. So I think that it's important. I, I I wish that we could bring troops home. I wish that we could walk away from that. And say you guys have a good day. It's going to be all right now because we saved you. That's not how that works though. Like on the ground, it's it's a crap fest in a lot of places. We've tried to get out of Iraq 
multiple times. Every time we back out, every time we have a trooper draw, some new nonsense flares back up, sectional fighting, uh, ethnic cleansing, genocidal behaviors between different factions of the of the uh, religious groups that are there. Um, and, and so we just have to march ourselves right back in. I don't, I don't know how we effectively, efficiently, morally move ourselves out of that situation because we are actually saving people's lives in spite of the fact that we've been engaged in warfare. And I know that's destructive, but at the same time, it's also preventative in a sense to make a, uh, to, to keep a larger uh, problem from unfolding. It's a complicated topic, but I agree with all. Yeah. All right. Next. All right. I'm back from the first question with a um, way less important question and less topic worthy, (laughs) but I'm just curious. Uh, what is your go-to meal at your favorite hometown restaurant here in Hot Springs, Arkansas? Hmm. Mm. Well, depends on the mood. P- I love me some pizza, man, but I know that's like maybe not the answer you're looking for. Like you're talking about like just home cooking type stuff or just whatever. Any, any restaurant like in, in your hometown. Comfort food. Let's go there. Well, <laughs> I, I'm from a tiny, 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 tiny little town, and there's only one restaurant called The Whippet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> little town called Prattsville, but it's famous for its fish, and like people will drive it. Like I mean, they they mentioned it on the Tonight Show one time when they were driving through Arkansas and they ate there, uh, and so I guess that's the only place I've got in my hometown. So I would eat there. Yeah, my hometown doesn't have anything. So my adopted hometown, I'm gonna say, is um, Oxford, Mississippi, Ole Miss. Cool. It's Ajax Diner on the square. It's country fried steak, mashed potatoes, okra. <laughs> I tell you, it's not here in Hot Springs, but I would love to go there. Out in a place not too far away from here, south of, of Little Rock, called Scott, little tiny, just just little place, little hole in the wall thing called a mercantile, and it's been there since like the 1800s, and it looks like it. It was this shack, and if you were just driving by, you're like, that thing's about to fall down. It's sitting there, the river, it's just dilapidated. But they had something in there called a hubcap burger, and it was like this chunk of meat, and it was the best burger I've ever had in my entire life. Um, and you know. It was it was actually internationally famous. People would travel to Scott, Arkansas, just to go there. We would every time we'd pull up, we'd see license plates from you know the different coasts up into Canada. Like people came, they knew about it. It was on the the trail of famous things to go and eat. Unfortunately, about five years ago, it burned down. So that's the end of that story. But I really really liked that. Yeah. There's a lot of places like that where you you go into a place and you're a little scared, but it has the best food because the 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 grills have been seasoned for so long. <laughs> it just has this. Right, it just has a different kind of. They're uh, not corporate like some of these places yeah. that just have the yeah. standard frozen yeah. stuff. Real food. They're they're making it from yeah. scratch. Yeah. All right. Cool. Next question. Uh, yeah, my name is Andrew Burson. This is more like orientated to uh, Mr. Franklin. Like, I what do you think the most uh, successful empire is across all of history? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, success. We could look at that different ways. We could talk about the size of the empire. We could talk about the longevity of the empire we could talk about the influence of the empire or all of the above i i i trend towards um success a lot of chinese dynasties were really long-lived and successful um i think about the tong dynasty and the song dynasty that followed them and all of the like so many technologies came out of that and and innovations and uh so i I lean towards that but i mean i I have to kind of give credit to britain you know the british empire from a from a country that's the size of Florida, basically, to go off and rule major parts of the world for as long as they did, that's pretty impressive. So, I mean, I, you know, I think overall, 
probably the two Chinese dynasties I talked about. Okay, so if you guys could go back to any time, who are you? One person. Who are you? Oh, Connor Johnson <laughs> is my name. Uh, if you could go back and meet one person, who would it be, and what would you say to them? Wow. <laughs> this is such a good question, but it's also difficult because you know, if you go back and try to meet your favorite human or somebody you really admire, you're probably going to be disappointed because <laughs> <laughs> like, you just don't want to ruin it. Yeah, never meet your heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, it's hard to nail that down because there's so many interesting people that we teach about, you know. Um, I mean, Lincoln would be cool because he'd just tell you stories, you know, and you just sit back and he 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 seems like a normal guy that's just not caught up in himself. He, he was self-deprecating, you know, funny guy. Um, like, if, if you go back and meet George Washington, he's just going to be so – he presents himself in such a way you couldn't really even get, to, you know, you kind of, you get what you, what you got. But with Lincoln, I think he'd relax and talk to you. So you'd want somebody you could actually ask questions and he would answer them. Or she. I would say I gravitate towards the, the Vietnam experience of the 60s and 70s. And I think about um, meeting Ho Chi Minh. Um, because of what I've read so much about him as I teach that story and its complexities to, to see what was really going on inside his head and what he was really trying to achieve and all of the dynamics around him that prevented him maybe from becoming the father of the country that he wanted to be. He's like their George Washington in a sense, uh, who worked tirelessly for, for decades trying to help them maintain independence from not only China, but then Japan and then the French and then the French again, and then us. And, uh, it's, you know, for him to be, I, w- I would like to see who he really was. Like that is, is he who I think he is? Kind of like what you were saying. Don't meet your. I'm not saying that he's a hero of mine, but I think he's an interesting person uh, to have challenged larger forces. Maybe that ties back in with the Haitian thing I was talking about too. The guy that basically ran that, a dude named Toussaint Louverture, who had been an ex-slave who gained his freedom and then gained education and then became an enlightened person and led this rebellion. Like those people interest me because they they defy odds. So. Yeah, I, I, just a side note, I, when I said end women, Abigail Adams, I mean, would be a very interesting person. To, I mean, she spent so much time away from her husband, but yet she's like the first. The first first lady? Kind of, the, yeah. Yeah, for real. Right. Do you have anybody? I don't have anybody <laughs> specifically. Yeah, there's too, there's too many. I got, yeah, that's a bad Play question toe. for me. <laughs> I can't do it. All right. I'm Ryan Sarden. And if you could make your own creation story that everyone would accept and believe, how would it go? <laughs> Once upon a time, a few mistakes ago. <laughs> <laughs> if I could create my own creation story, if I'm the creator, wow. Mm, we, uh, that we've studied this recently, and so uh, they all have a, a similar feel. You know, if you go back into the, to the different native groups around the world, People emerged from the planet somehow, either from a cave or they were molded from dirt and then they suddenly became, you know, enlightened. Uh, If I was going to do a creation story, I would say, you know, about uh, 16 billion years ago, there was this spark in the universe and eventually it led to the formation of solar systems and planets and galaxies. And then on this one particular place with water and blue skies and topsoil that can grow nutrients, um... Slowly over time, people evolved from lower forms. That would seem like a good one to me. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't have anything better than that. Yeah, I'm done. All right, I think our time is just about up. So uh, we got one one more yep, question. Yep, yep. I'm Allison Irwin. If you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? And all you need is love. <laughs> love. <laughs> love is all you need. Just yeah, just calm just down. Sing that. Just everybody, just calm everybody down. Take a breath. Okay. Get some coffee. Just calm down. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good one. Count to ten. <laughs> yeah. Shut yeah. up and listen to each <laughs> other. Yeah. Yeah, thirty seconds. We still have, we still have like fifteen more <laughs> seconds. Go, keep saying things. Love you, <laughs> what I got. <laughs> I don't know. I just start singing. <laughs> you know, maybe somebody hire me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Any? Yeah. All right. That sounds good. That's All right. good. We'll good question. All right. Thank y'all. Thank you. Third period. Thanks, guys. <laughs>